HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wides, back from summer vacation, woo, all rested and tanned and relaxed. So hi there, everybody. It's been a long time. It's been two months since my last show. I didn't even realize that. I thought it had been like maybe five or six weeks, but two months, that's a really long time. Too long. Too long. I've been gone. And I've missed you all so much. Every single one of you. Especially Jack. I miss Jack. Oh, we missed you too. Oh, but I saw you at the party the other day. That's true. Yeah. But it was so loud, we couldn't talk. Sorry. Yeah. That was my fault. That was your fault, I know. It was. I know. It's okay. You're young. Anyway, I have missed everybody. And I have so much new stuff. So much new stuff to tell you and to talk about and to complain about and to rant about. Like, seriously, I don't even know where to begin. There's so much stuff going in my head right now. But summer's over. That's for damn sure. Except that it's actually quite unpleasantly warm and humid today here in New York. It doesn't feel like almost the first day of October. And yet on Sunday, I was wearing a wool sweater. So it's that typical, like, what is it time of year? But I wore the wool sweater after I took my last swim in the pool where the water was 69 degrees. Uh huh. Now, I had to get one last swim in outside for the summer, even if the icy cold water did make my actual bones ache because it was so cold. But I had to get in there because it was my last chance. The pool was closing. That was going to be it. Then I got out of the pool. I dried off and I put the wool sweater back on. And you know what? I kind of love that. 
like I sort of love that temperature range. It's like sort of how I imagine living in like my dream climate would be. Some place where it's sunny and warm enough to swim, but dry and cool enough to wear a sweater when you get out every day. Where is this mythical place? Does this place exist? Because if it does, I want to live there. So if you know where that place is, please tweet me at Let's Get Real Show and let me know. And I will move immediately. But I must say, I must say that I think that maybe I have actually had the best summer ever, really, like of my 40 odd years, the best summer probably I ever had. Mm -hmm. I know that's a big statement, bold, even better than the four summers that I spent at my amazing creative and performing arts day camp for talented Jewish kids which was a very excellent place, USDAM Center for the Creative and Performing Arts. Those were great summers. I loved my camp, but it was day camp, so I had to go home every night. So things at camp were great, but things at home, not so good. We won't go there. But this summer, all was good. Everything at camp was great. Things at home, work, all good. You know why? Well, Um, For one, I didn't actually really work for the whole month of August. So that made things really nice. Because remember that restaurant that I'm consulting on going on two years now and which was supposed to be opening in August. So I cleared my whole schedule for the month in order to be there 24-7 for the opening, which is why I haven't done a show in two months. Remember that? Well, guess what? We're still not open. (laughs) Yeah, not open yet. We're getting close. Most likely the end of next week, but my clients don't seem to be in that much of a rush, which is weird to me, because they're hemorrhaging money every day. They're paying a staff. They're paying rent. I, I don't know. I don't get it. Doesn't seem to stress them out, so it's not stressing me out. I didn't even go in today so I could come and do a show. So, But that's why the summer was so great, because basically I had like more than a month off because I cleared my schedule. So all I did was swim and hike and cook and work out and read the New Yorker and read the new Judy Bloom book and read Go Set a Watchman, which was not very good. It was like being European with all that vacation time. I mean, those guys have it totally made. The Germans get six weeks off a year. I felt German in a way, but without the, you know, emissions software corruption issue. Now, not that I should complain, because since leaving my full-time job two and a half years ago, as you know, and becoming a consultant slash actor slash part-time teacher, writer, lifestyle model, life has been pretty good. Not super lucrative, but way less stressful, and I'm much less full of hate and anger than I was back then. So that's huge, right? So back to the summer. Anyway, let's get on track here. You know how I like to hike, right? See that? Getting on track. Ha <laughs> ha. Pun. I really like to hike. And Adam really likes to hike. And so we have a repertoire, repertoire of hikes that we pull from every weekend. We have a sort of set of hikes that we rotate and that we go on when we're hiking on the weekend. But usually that hike on the weekend happens on Friday because we hate crowded hikes or crowded really anything really lately basically we hate people so when you're not working you can hike on Fridays which is awesome because there's no people there and people kind of ruin everything in a way mostly but we also have very strict parameters for our hikes they have to be steep 
and strenuous and involves some scrambling. Scrambling, if you don't know, is where you have to actually use your hands and arms when you're hiking to help yourself up the rock face. Not quite rock climbing like with ropes, but close. They can't be too long of a drive. And the whole hike has to be finished in under two and a half hours. Those are the rules. So that leaves us about four different trails that we just kind of rotate on a weekly basis. We get tired of them by this time of the year. We're like, okay, we're done. But we keep doing them. Now, one of the best of those trails, hiking-wise, which covers all of those things, steep, strenuous, scrambling, not too far away, two and a half hours complete, one of the best. It has all those things, plus it has bathrooms, which is a big plus. It's called the Major Welch Trail, and it's at Bear Mountain State Park. Now, Bear Mountain State Park is a New York state park, about 50 miles up the Hudson River from New York, and just across the Hudson River from Peekskill, which conveniently is where Tiny Bungalow is. By the way, one of my listeners, I'm sorry I can't remember your name, showed up at Tiny Bungalow this summer to look at the houses to maybe buy one in the community, which was very cool. I hope you do. Anyway, the Major Welch Trail has this very steep, sheer rock face that you have to climb up and definitely involves some scrambling, plus a very steady uphill hike that approaches that rock face. So it's a really good hike. It's strenuous. It gets your heart pounding, good cardio. It's beautiful. That part of it is never crowded because it's hard. So it's really good. Except for the fact that it's located in Bear Mountain State Park, which is a total dump. I'm sorry, Bear Mountain State Park, but it's a dump. Bear Mountain was one of the first WPA CCC era state parks to be built during the Depression. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go back and study your post-Depression pre-war history. The WPA, Works Progress Administration, and the CCC built all the parks. And it was beautiful then, and it has a beautiful now old Adirondack style lodge building and a beautiful old carousel and an ice skating rink and a lake and lots of beautiful stuff. It has all kinds of nice stuff, beautifully situated in the mountains. So nice. And it had a major makeover a few years ago and they redid the lodge and it would be a beautiful national parks caliber state park if it weren't 50 miles from New York City. And as I said, a total dump because it's so overused literally a dump this place is so overused and so overrun with douchebags and morons every weekend that we can only bear to go there on weekdays park outside of the actual park because we don't pay for parking and hike in on our secret trail do the climb use the bathrooms for free and get the hell out that's how we roll Now, Major Welch is one of the best climbs in the region, in my humble opinion. Because when you get to the top of Bear Mountain, you get a view of the entire lower Hudson Valley clear down to Manhattan. You can see the city from the top on a clear day, which is very cool. Now, you can also drive up to the top. Not so very cool. Driving to the top. Okay. Now, like up in New Hampshire, there's Mount Washington, which is one of the hardest climbs on the East Coast and takes eight hours and incredibly strenuous, and I have done it. You can also drive to the top of that. That I kind of get. Not everybody can do Mount Washington. Okay. But driving to the top of Bear Mountain. So after you sweat and pant your way up the rocks, pulling yourself up with your fingertips, climbing up these steer rock faces, putting everything you've got in your little tiny body into that hike... 
there's all these a-holes in their cars at the top blocking the view. Or there's people who hiked up the easy trail, the one we go down, the one with the built-in steps and the handrails. And what do these a-holes, d-bags, and morons do at the top once they get up there other than take selfies so tantalizingly close to the edge of the cliff? Adam has to practically restrain me because just a tiny little tap, that's all it would take to send them tumbling down. What do they do? When they get to the top, they buy crap from the vending machines that are up there that have replaced the beautiful old Adirondack-style hiker shop and bathrooms that used to be there. They shut that down, put in a bunch of vending machines. So, yes, you can drive your douchey SUV to the top of Bear Mountain, hoist your woefully unfit self out of the car, buy a can of pumpkin spice-flavored Pringles and a blue-flavored Gatorade, take your effing selfie, and get back in your stupid car and drive back down, leaving a trail of exhaust fumes for me to breathe in. Thank you, America. So where does this all fit into my weekly rant about food? and foodiness. What is my point? You know it takes me a while. Well, despite the trash cans located throughout the entire park labeled trash in two languages, trash y basura, two languages, the park is totally trashed with trash. The last time we did the hike a few weeks ago, which may be my last because I may have been pushed over the edge, the trail coming down which is the easy one that 99% of the people take going up, was just a shitstorm pile of plastic water bottles, Gatorade bottles, beer cans, and wrappers. Endless wrappers from 100 million different variations on the processed, packaged, useless, and food-free world of snacks. Now, not just the so-called energy, power, fitness snacks, but Pringles cans and chip bags and candy wrappers and snack pack 100-calorie crap, you name it. Even, brace yourself, diapers. Yes, used diapers rolled up and tossed on the hiking trail. Like somebody was so, what's, what, I can't even imagine it. Like they thought, oh, let's go take a hike in this beautiful wilderness and bring our baby to show them what the natural world is like. Oh, the baby just crapped its diaper. Let's roll it up and throw it on the side of that trail. I'm all for enforced execution of these people. I'm anti-guns, but I must say, if you're going to drop your baby shit-filled diaper on the side of a hiking trail, I don't think you deserve to perpetuate your DNA. That's all I'm saying. Now, on other hikes that we take, on lesser-used trails outside of that park, outside of that part of that park, all you have to do is go down the road, and there's other trails that are perfectly nice. But this is the hard one that we like. So on lesser used hikes, the ones that only actual hikers use, not the D-bag amateurs, you'll find the occasional wrapper or bottle on the side of the path. And you assume that it fell out of a hiker's pack or pocket by mistake. We always say it probably fell out by mistake. And we usually pick it up and take it out with us. As good hikers should do, it's good karma it's the code oh look at this one stray piece of trash on this otherwise pristine trail it must be here by mistake i will pick it up and do my good karma because someone else will too but here in the giant trash heap called bear mountain state park this pile of shit isn't accidentally dropped stuff it's intentionally or just dropped 
stuff, not even thinking, not having any sort of intention or lack of intention, just brainless dropping. People literally shitting out their trash wherever they feel like it. Like, oh, there it goes. Like an incontinent old person or like a massive group of unpotty trained toddlers allowed to run free, undiapered and unfettered and taken a dump wherever they feel like it. That's what it seems like with the garbage. You can tell because they do that thing people do with trash where they find a little nook or cranny and they shove it in there intentionally like a little hollow between two trees. They'll neatly tuck the trash in there. Not just drop it on the floor, although they do that too. But actually take the time to take the garbage and find some clever spot to put it. As if the tree will just absorb it or something. Do they think with their blue flavor stained gray matter of a brain that by tucking it neatly into a tree crevice that they're being more responsible because they're not just dropping it? Like, oh, if I set the can up on this tree stump as opposed to dropping it on the ground, I'm intentionally putting it somewhere other than the ground? You see this behavior in the city, too. People tucking their trash into small spaces, like in the subway. Like a fucking squirrel stashing away their nuts. But nuts are temporary. Plastic garbage is forever. Now, we always carry a few of those plastic produce bags from the supermarkets in our packs um, because we can't throw them out. So we have a huge bag of plastic produce bags at home, and we reuse them because I can't throw plastic away. And they're not recyclable. So I always stash a few in my pack when we hike because then in case of rain, we can put our phones, our wallets, our snacks inside of them. Or if we find anything interesting like mushrooms or dead bugs that we want, we can use the bags to collect the stuff or whatever. There's a million uses for a plastic bag. You should always have one with you. Or we can use them to collect trash. Now this time it was so bad Now, I normally would not do this. I wouldn't intentionally fill a bag with trash that I find on the side of the road or the trail. I would just pick one random thing up, stick it in my pocket, and throw it away. This time we were like, Jesus, we have to pull out the bags and start collecting. So we pulled out the bags, and we started collecting, and we filled two of them completely full, jammed full with garbage. And that was just on the lower half mile of the trail. We left a ton of it behind. And the bulk of what we were picking up was those freaking plastic water bottles. Those bottles. I swear we should start a class action suit against Poland Spring because they are responsible for so much goddamn trash. And by the way, what about just carrying your own water bottle? I do it. It's sitting right here next to me right now. A lot of people do it. Why can't we all just carry a water bottle? Remember canteens? I used to have a canteen back in Scouts. That's what we used before there were plastic water bottles. That's what people used before the invention of bottled water, a canteen. There's no reason to buy water in a bottle. There are even water fountains all around the park, functioning water fountains with good Catskill Mountain Reservoir water in there. Use them, people. Drink that water. Now, a few years ago, a story broke that at the Grand Canyon National Park, gem of the system. They brilliantly decided at the national parks, at Grand Canyon in particular, to stop selling bottled water in the park to reduce the plastic water bottle trash. And instead, they provided these stations with cold, fresh, filtered, 
tap water on tap for filling your own water bottle. Not just a water fountain, but actually like a filler thing. New York City has started installing those in their parks. Yay. Thank you, New York. One of the good things you've done lately. Well, guess who made a huge stink and threatened legal action against the parks? Uh Uh-huh. No, not Poland Spring, but close. Coca-Cola, the makers of Dasani, or the bottlers of Dasani, I should say. They had the bottled water monopoly on the national parks, and they weren't about to give up that lucrative market just because the most spectacular, beautiful, and ancient wonder of the Western world was turning into a giant pile of plastic-choked shit. Oh, no. We are drowning, dying, and suffocating in plastic packaging. More than half the fish caught now has plastic in its guts. Tiny, tiny pellets of plastic in their stomachs. More than half the fish caught in the world now has ingested plastic. Where is it coming from? Trash in the oceans. Bottles, wrappers, cans, bags, packets, all of it. All of it is because of foodiness. It's all because of foodiness. The ingestion of the fake and the faux and the false foods. And that fear of real food and real water. It's the brainwashing of the American public. Don't drink the real water from the tap. Don't eat the real food. Buy the package, buy the process, buy the bottle, buy the can, and then toss away your garbage so you can drown and die and be buried in your own debris. Don't trust real water. Don't trust real food. Don't make an effort to pack your own snacks because you can just hoist your obese diabetic selves out of your Escalade and grab a can of processed potato slurry or pink water instead. Here's a little quiz. What does an apple come packaged in? Answer, um, it's skin. Hmm. What about that handful of nuts that you want to bring hiking? Um, I could put it in a reusable container that I can reuse and reuse and reuse and take home with me. Hmm. When the Israelites and Moses, my people, my ancestors, when they left Egypt and set out to wander across the desert for 40 years, do you think they brought cases of vitamin water and Twix bars with them? Do you? Do you think they opted for the single-serve 100-calorie packs of matzah? No! When the Ingalls packed it up for the third or fourth time to set off for new territory because Pa couldn't stay in one place, did Ma stop at Costco first for a case of power bars? No! Did the Jodes, when they were heading west, make a stop at the 7-Eleven on their way out of Oklahoma? No! And they all made it. Decades, hundreds, thousands of years before us, they made it. The pilgrims on the Mayflower? No! Yours and my great-grandparents in steerage on ships? No! But they made it. But we think we can't live without the prepackaged, the bottled, the sanitized and sealed and wrapped tight. It's making me sick and it's making me angry. Can you tell? I'm going to take a little break right now to just calm down, regain my summer inner peace, and then we'll be back. I
Here's what Heritage Radio Network would sound like without donations. It's not as good as the show you were just listening to, is it? Give us a few bucks. Help keep us running. HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Click the Donate tab on the top right corner. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wides, your host. I think Jack plays that music intentionally to try to calm me down. And he's, you know, I think he knows the artist, too. That was Odetta Hartman, by the way, with that beautiful song. Today's break music was provided by her. Jack knows her very well. Anyway... Uh, oh, where was I? Oh, yeah. So a while ago, I think it was a few weeks ago, driving home from a perfect weekend of swimming and grilling and reading and drinking and hiking through trash, I heard a story on NPR that really stuck with me. Now, I listen to a lot of NPR, like any chance I can get. I'm a little bit of an NPR junkie. Not to say I don't love Heritage Radio, of course, but I can't get it in my car because my car is 15 years old pre-internet so i listen to npr when i can and this was a story about sound i think it was on radio lab i can't remember now as a radio person and just a generally curious human being person i'm always interested in stories about the senses taste and sound and sight the senses very interesting to me and really about any story about how humans interact and adapt to our environment and how it affects our senses. Those sorts of stories really pull me in, especially if it involves food, of course. Now, this one didn't, but it still snagged me. Now, this piece was an interview with the guy who's, uh, I don't know what he's called, a soundologist. I don't know. He studies sound. He's a sound guy. But he particularly studies the sounds of the world, I mean, I guess all sounds are sounds of the world, but specifically, actually, the sounds of the world. I'll get to that in a second. And he used three terms that I'd never heard before, but I just loved them. Now, I'm kind of a word person, too. I guess that makes sense, since I do this. And I love learning new words, so I virtually tapped them into my phone. I can't say anymore. I wrote them down, because I don't think I even remember how to write. But I put them into my phone, so I'd remember them. Because this is what I have to do now to remember things. I have to write them down in my phone because my hard drive is full, so I need backup storage, and that's what my phone is for. Now, the three words, these three words, were geophony, biophony, and anthrophony. Get that? Geophony, biophony, and anthrophony. Yeah, like cacophony or symphony. Get it? Now, these are the sounds of the natural world around us. Geophony is the sound that the actual geology of the planet makes. The sound of the earth itself from deep inside the earth. The sounds of tectonic plates shifting and creaking or the hiss of underground steam or the constant rumbling of the inner guts of the planet. That's pretty cool, right? There are sounds coming out of the earth and this guy records them and analyzes them and came up with this word, geophony. Biophony is the sound of the natural world, the trees and the plants and the animals, things like listening to the crickets at night or hearing the trees swaying and respirating oxygen because you can actually hear the trees breathing. Those sorts of sounds, the sounds of the natural, physical, plant and animal world. That's the biophony. And then there's the anthrophony. And that one's easy because that's us. So it's all the sounds human humans make, you know, from 
talking to radio to burping to driving to building hideous high rises all over my formerly cozy low rise neighborhood. Those sounds. So anyway, in the piece, he played samples of sounds from areas that had been previously wild or rural or undeveloped, all the natural sounds from there, the biophony and anthropony of those places. Then he played the same sounds from the places after they'd been logged or farmed or developed. And the difference was astounding. The lack of natural sounds was freaky and horrifying, especially in the forests, from a cacophony of biophony to near total silence. And as I listened to this guy, I thought, wow, he forgot one. Maybe the most important one. One that's a mashup of the other three. The one that makes, the one that takes from all of them. The sum of the geobio and anthrophonies. Or maybe he didn't forget one, but I'm naming it. Or I'm just really making one up because I love the idea of it. So I decided that we're missing one and that's the foodophony. The foodophony. Not just all the noise and chatter and endless discussion of food, of which I'm certainly one of the louder voices, but all the industrial, agricultural, mechanical, animal, and chemical noises involved in producing food. They all add up to the foodophony, which encompasses all food, not just real food, but foodiness too, even more for foodiness, because it takes as its source material the actual food, like corn and soybeans, which, well, aren't really exactly food, and then remanufactures those things a second time into something entirely different, not food but a food-like substance sold as food with all the attending foodophonic noise and bells and gimmicks. Now, the Jodes, back to the Jodes. You know who I mean by the Jodes, right? Grapes of Wrath, Steinbeck? I hope you all read it in high school. If you didn't, you should read it now. The Jodes, as they were setting off, they didn't think, what snacks should we take along on the road? They didn't think that. Ma Ingalls didn't say, Charles, we need to stop and get gluten-free pretzel, pretzel chips for the wagon train because Carrie's teacher thinks she has ADHD and should stop eating gluten. They didn't have the foodophony on endless shuttle loop in their heads like we do now. Confronted at every turn, every corner, every freaking hiking trail with a big pile of foodiness, foodophonic garbage. They just ate food. Whatever food they had, food that they produced or grew or raised or bartered or baked, did they drop their trash along the way? Well, yeah, for sure. Definitely they dropped their trash along the way. Was the Oregon Trail littered with broken ceramic jugs and chicken bones? Um, yeah, totally for sure. Was there a trail of matzah crumbs and pomegranate peels and date pits on the sandy footprints in the desert as Moses and the Israelites fled? Uh, totally, yes, also, for sure. Humans have always left their trash behind. It's what we do. It's how anthropologists have learned so much about our ancestors and about us. But that trash wasn't wrapped in plastic. That trash was all purely biodegradable. Without those trash piles, we'd never learn from our past what we ate, how we lived, what we hunted, what we grew, what we cooked. In 500 years from now, when they finally excavate Bear Mountain State Park after the Indian Point nuclear plant, which is located just across the river from the park, has oh, and situated on top of a seismic fault line, FYI, after Indian Point has blown up and the entire New York City metro area is wiped out in the blast, 
and nobody's lived here for 500 years and enough time has passed that it's safe to go in there and poke around and start excavating and looking back at what are our civilization left behind. What are they going to find? What do you think? Is it going to be fragments of pottery and chicken bones and oyster shells and fruit pits? I don't think so. Maybe they'll find that, maybe they'll think that we were some culture of tree worshiping squirrel humans and we were tucking these empty bottles and Capri Sun pouches into the cracks between the rocks and the trees to appease the angry gods. They're going to find huge piles of plastic bottles and wrappers and Pringles cans and they're going to wonder what this strange food was that we were eating in our time. What were these odd, completely uniform and identically shaped crispy wafers made from potato that were stacked in a non-recyclable, non-degradable can? Was it some sort of higher form of worship? Were we worshiping our gods, the gods who created our world and our time? The gods of foodiness? Probably. Oh, that's all the time we have for this week to end on that note. Thanks today to Jack Inslee for being the engineer. Thanks to me for producing the show and creating the show. Thanks again to Odette Hartman for the music. The sponsor for this week's show is Kane Vineyard and Winery in Napa Valley, California. My buddy Chris's winery. Thank you, as always. Thanks for tuning in, listener. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends to subscribe to the show on iTunes and feel free to get in touch with us at heritageradionetwork.org. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at Let's Get Real Show. Next up, a short clip from Cooking Issues. We'll see you next week. It's good to be back. Bye-bye. If you research old recipes on pancakes and waffles, you'll find that the major difference between them, in fact, in some ways, the only difference you need to pay attention to between them is that a waffle recipe is going to contain a significant amount of oil or oil-like thing like butter, okay? Host of Cooking Issues, Dave Arnold, on the true difference between the beloved breakfast sweets. And the reason is the sticking to the sides of the of the waffle iron. So if you try to do a lower fat version of a waffle, you'll find that it just sticks like a like nobody's business. Modern day waffle irons have a Teflon coating on the inside of them and are much better at releasing and so don't require as much fat in them as the old school recipes. And so you'll see a lot of more modern recipes really tone the fat level down because the fat level can be quite high. We're talking well over half of a cup in like a four and a half cup flour recipe. I find though that I like it better with that high amount of uh, fat in it. Long story short, I use the same recipe because I'd rather have the more fat in my pancake recipe than the less fat in the waffle. It makes it easier to remember. So I use the same batter for both pancakes and for waffles. This was an excerpt from episode 101 of Cooking Issues. Want more of your cooking questions answered? You can find all Cooking Issues episodes and much more available anytime on heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit organization broadcasting over 30 live shows a week. To learn more and donate, visit our website or connect with us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.